podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, Jamie. I've just Hello, checked Jamie. and it was four years since we spoke on my podcast last time. Yes, yeah, it was. Yeah, I was talking to you about kangaroos at that time, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I was listening to your uh, podcast. If you haven't listened to Jamie's podcast, Club Chimera, go and do it. Uh, it's awesome. And the Exit of the Dragon. And I think we've got a few crossovers about the martial arts movies. And it was super interesting to hear how much famous and skillful people you get in a circus. I wasn't aware that so many of the catch wrestlers, boxers, and other um, kind of famous people go through that kind of um, environment. Yeah, um, thanks, Les. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting subject. To be honest, I, I wasn't really that aware either. either. You, you know that there's an old expression that uh, fish discover water last. Well, I kind mm -hmm. of feel like a bit about that, the martial arts connection to circus. Um, uh, many moons ago, um, I wrote a satirical piece called Core Chat, and I changed mm -hmm. it to a, and I ended up doing a podcast um, called Core Chat as well, where it's an April Fool's gag. And, and, and essentially what it was, was it was me having a, having a dig at uh, revisionist martial arts. You know how a lot of martial arts will recreate their history? Mm -hmm. And a lot of modern, there are a lot of modern systems, should we say, and a lot of uh, martial arts do it all the time, whichever country they come from or whatever background they they, they have their martial art. It's usually virtually every system of martial art is, is a hybridized form. I mean, it's always funny whenever you read a martial art and it's it, it advertised itself as being a hybrid martial art. Most martial arts are hybrid. Most martial arts take influences from even if it's not from other combat arts, it's from uh, other systems of training and, and different environments. We we can't help but cross train. That's that's the nature of humans. This is no discipline is an island, is it, really, in many, in that, in many respects? Very, very few are, anyway. We get a lot of cross-pollination. Um, uh, 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 um, so, I uh, anyway, uh, you, you get these martial artists, and they recreate their history. And it's, just a, it's often a joke, and they'll, and they'll say that, uh, that their background is, uh, I don't, you know, originated... In, a, in their country is often their way because they want to they want to separate any connection from other martial arts like that, that, that came in. They like to say it's indigenous to their country, and uh, and it's solely created by them. I could I call that the immaculate um, like an immaculate creation myth. Mm -hmm. Like this martial art came out of nowhere and no one has it. And don't get me wrong, there are a lot of martial arts that we sometimes assume have got influences from other systems, and then we find out later on. The, the historical data, the evidence shows that actually it's not the case. You know, we, you know, it's 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 from, for example, for a long time, I I kind of assumed that a lot of Filipino martial arts had a lot of influences from from the Spanish. You know, often thought mm -hmm. that well, it, it seemed to make sense to me. You know, you've got the, and, and then I also thought that a lot of Spanish schools of fencing were older than Italian because it's assumed you know the Toledo steel and all that kind of thing. So. But it's actually not the case, you know. That I think some of the oldest fencing schools that are extant to this day are, um, are are Italian, and and as it turns out, a lot of Filipino martial arts. No, no, there isn't. The, the, their, their systems are very, very different from a lot of the fencing systems from Europe. It's clearly got a different sort of route. 
But yeah, anyway, so a lot of martial artists do do this modern revisionism. So what I thought I'd do is I'd have a go at circus. So I thought, here's the thing, I'm going to write a piece and I'm going to pretend that this ancient martial art was created in the circus. <laughs> and, awesome. was, and, and I thought well, I'll write I'll, I'll write this story about I was influenced partly by Robert Smith Robert W Smith I don't know if, if you if you know he wrote yeah. um he was a he was a very famous um American martial arts journalist in fact one of the pioneers I think he was one of the first uh um English-speaking people who brought back a lot of Chinese martial arts texts and again he you know did an awful lot of research very very opinionated writer i have to say um often quite um political and, and controversial to, for some people but he um he wrote a, quite a few books and material under a pseudonym and a lot of the time it was having a bit of a dig at the martial arts world and having a having a bit of a play with it um but anyway um so partly influenced by him i thought i'll write this martial arts so i thought i'll call it core chat because it's that's polari it's like circus backslang Circus, mm -hmm. circus had like a backslang. It's virtually extinct now, but it was a sort of a coded slang that they used to use for terms. It's a mixture of Italian and uh, Romany and things like that. And 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 uh, core means fight, and chat means thing. Chat's a really useful word in the circus. Honestly, mm -hmm. you, you have two people in the circus, and they'll keep passing the chat, and everyone knows what they're talking about. That's the weird thing. My cousin and I, I remember we would back when I was teaching kickboxing many, many moons ago in the 90s. Um, he was he'd just come along as, as, as my help just to work the work the desk while I taught the lessons. And we had quite a little thing going on. And and people would just be they're shaking their heads. The students would be going because we'd be going, get the chat. There's the, there's the chat in the car. Get the chat. And I was going, mm. What, 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 wait, and how do you two know what you're talking about? And it goes, to, <laughs> and it's that weird sort of thing. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not multilingual, even bilingual like you, Les. So, um, but you, you kind of, um, it's funny how there's just like inflections and in, in, inferences that you get in languages, isn't there, you know, and then other people that, that you connect. And, but that's what you often get with, with that slang. So I thought I'll call it fight thing and I'll create this martial art. I'll pretend this I'll, I'll, on paper. I'll create this martial art. Mm. There was this secret martial art. It was taught in the circus. You only trained it under the tent. You only trained it in a circus ring. And you had names like the clown, <laughs> you know, the clown shoe would be in a certain technique and all this sort of thing. And it's it's all disguised in the acts, you know, you know, you know so I thought I'd play that one up. You know, mm -hmm. about, you know, use dance to disguise martial arts. So I thought a lot of performances are really martial arts. Are, um, training it's actually all being hidden by all the all the different training that's going on in there so I made it up and I had, and I had a bit of a laugh with it and to be honest it wasn't that successful to get it out there to get I didn't get that much mm. of a response at all a lot of people you know uh you know probably thought I was I was gonna um but I did get one or two people contacting me actually thinking it was real Oh, wow. <laughs> and, 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 you can and, sell anything. <laughs> yeah. And they started to go, oh, wow, this is incredible. Cool. What more stuff can you show us on this? Got, I mean, oh, no, hold on a second. I thought if I was a very, if I was a person of a certain persuasion, uh, I could very easily start marketing this. And then you'd start creating this, uh, this system. So I always joked about it. But the truth of the matter is that although there is no secret circus martial art and there's no martial arts particular to the circus, because I started to hear all this stuff, honestly, Les, I was hearing people going, oh, there's prostitute martial arts, there's, there's, there's martial arts from th this community, from that community, and there's all these kind of like sometimes plausible sounding stories how people have created stuff. And of course, we know about things like Jailhouse Rock, and I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not dismissing that, but people have often questioned about origins, about certain systems. And um, but, you know, so I was I was always like, you know, I thought that would just be, be funny. But then I started to look, look, and I thought, well, actually, there is an enmeshed history, though, between martial arts 
and circus far more enmeshed than I realized. And, and so, um, you know, some of the people I interviewed, number one, my own family, um, there are at least two world, well, one world champion, one challenger for the world championship, who was the Commonwealth and Empire champion, who were good friends with my grandparents mm-hmm. uh, on Chipperfield Circus. My, my, on my mother's side, um, they, uh, they have a 300 year, um, or so they say a 300 year lineage um, in traveling performance. Um, you know, the Chipperfield's name has been involved in show business even before the invention of the modern circus. So it goes back to 1684 where the first recorded Chipperfield um, uh, apparently um, worked, um, performed on uh, the frozen Thames, the Thames froze over in mm-hmm. London. And there were these fairs um, that they used to hold, the famous frost fairs they called them. And on one of the listings they've got for 1684, they've got a Chipperfield um, with a bear. Wow with a bear so it came, came over there and so in the legend is that they came over from the Pyrenees I don't know if that makes this French or Spanish but uh, you know I'm, I'm doing a DNA test at the moment so maybe I'll get some more light on that one but the story is they came over from the Pyrenees and the, and they took on the name Chipperfield whether or not it was a name they took with them from abroad I doubt it they, they, or they adopted it because it's an English name um, and uh, they um, and, and that's the first recorded performer we haven't got a direct link to that person Okay, so at the moment it seems highly likely because, you know, performers, you know what I mean, performing, mm. you know, performing family turn up in the 19th century and then you've got a performer in 1684 with the same surname. It's, it seems likely, but, you know, I'm not going to say 100% that that's our, our connection, you know. It's a bit, as we know, in the martial arts world, we often hear all these dubious lineages. But anyway, within that family, because we, we uh, circus and fairground um, used to coexist uh, and were virtually the same thing. They're not today. Today, Mm -hmm. in fact, I have got branches of my family who are showmen. I've got at least two branches I know of who are Chipperfields who run. And showmen means fairground people. And in the US, you call that carnival. In the US, you call fairground carnival. In uh, in the UK, we call it fairground or fair people. And uh, they always call them showmen. The name for that is showmen. Uh, So you've got circus people and you've got showmen. Uh, And they're divided um, as we speak at the moment culturally. But you go back about 50, 60 years, um, and they were pretty much the same. This is just it. And my my family were very much the same. So the fair and the circus would be operating together as they'd been mm-hmm. traveling and you'd have the fairground attractions and all the sort of stuff that was going on there. So within those attractions, you obviously have sporting events. And I'm sure as you know, uh, wrestling has, has long been a part of fairs. Mm-hmm. You know, both both in the UK and in France, for example. So in France, we get Greco-Roman wrestling. Yeah, we get, they, it's a misnomer, you know, Greco-Roman wrestling, as we know. It doesn't resemble anything like ancient Greek wrestling. It's just the name they ended up calling. Mm. But essentially, the, the styles of folk wrestling were then developed into what we call Greco-Roman, which is the, frankly, fantastic combat or um, art and martial art of um of of greco-roman wrestling and then you kind of got um and then over in the uk you've got the various different folk styles of of wrestling and i don't mean folk style in the same way as america uses the term folk style and one of those was lancashire wrestling which became catches catch can you know Mm. became catch wrestling which became which became a very hybridized style so you know lancashire wrestling you know in some in some respects lancashire wrestling resembled MMA in a way, you know, it's, in, it, it's you know, it's, it's a lot of arguments saying that, you know, it was a form of MMA. Um, in, in America, they had the rough and tumble, which was also like a, a very brutal form of MMA where 
But it, I mean, to give you an idea how brutal it was in America, one of the names for for rough and tumble wrestling was gouging. You know, so you get an idea why it's called that. But over here, we had Lancashire wrestling, which became Catch's Catch Can. It mixed with the visiting jujitsu, um, stroke judo that was happening at the turn of the 20th century and things like that. Um, now, where were those bouts being held? They were being held on fairgrounds and they're being held in theatres. But what theatres were they being held in? Musical. Now, musical mm-hmm. has the same as a shared history with circus, strong shared history of circus. And I know that because my first book I wrote was called The Legend of Salt and Sauce, um, two of the UK's most famous elephants that came mm-hmm. over from India at the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century. And uh, they, their trainer mainly worked in musical and vaudeville. In America, the equivalent's called vaudeville. So you've got musical over here. So essentially, this is a, these are these buildings. And these buildings were often built for that purpose. They weren't built for what we call straight theatre or opera or anything like that. They were built for musical. They were built for circus, because circus wasn't always touring. And it still isn't always touring. It's circuses are often, there are whole buildings like the Cirque de Verre in France and various other places where buildings are actually built for the purpose of putting a circus on type of variety performance so it's almost interchangeable with musical there are certain things that are very particular to the musical style and i'm not going to say they're exactly the same but they they're so intermingled it's very difficult to untangle it as far as the history is concerned mm. a bit like fairground and circus so you've got circus with fairground circus with musical circus with vaudeville abroad so you've got this going on and within all that you've got these fighters so first of all you've got the wrestlers um, that's the first thing that comes to mind, the catch wrestling coming up out of that. So with the catch wrestling, you've got this, um, uh, you know, uh, fight, uh, wrestlers going on and having a wrestling match in front of everybody. And most cases, like taking on all comers, taking on challenges. Yeah. OK, so this is and this is not uncommon in a lot of martial arts, as we know, you know, mm-hmm. everything from uh, a motor boot, you know, in karate, you know, challenging people to prove that his art's effective to the Gracies doing it over in with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Challenge matches are not an uncommon thing. Obviously, yeah. people are paying to watch these things and you've got prizes and all this sort of stuff going on. I've obviously, you know, when you watch, when, uh, but also boxing matches are happening at the same time. And I'm, and I'm sure you'll also be, be aware that in the 19th century, you know, wrestlers and wrestling and boxing had a very shared uh, commonality. A lot of mm. boxers were also wrestlers. And I think a lot of people don't appreciate just how close that was up until modern times. I mean, I'm talking about in the early part and the first part of the 20th century. So relatively speaking, it's not that long ago. Or maybe it's because I'm getting old now. <laughs> it seems to be that long ago. You know, that's that's my grandfather, you know, that's my grandparents' generation. So you have you have um this going on. You've got um the uh uh um boxers who can also become wrestlers you've got jack johnson the first black heavyweight champion of the world wrestled a lot and certainly when he was still world champion when he was um uh, uh when he ran from the u.s you know when when they put the trumped up charges through the man act then he, he had to and he had to flee the u.s and tour as, as still as the world champion outside of the u.s he he would have to he, you know he's struggling to make money so he's having to to wrestle as well, but not only wrestle, but also perform mm-hmm. as a clown, as a musician, wow. as a musician, the world heavyweight champion of the world in these performances, which again is linked to circus. Someone else who was like that is that. So you're looking at Jack Johnson. So Jack Johnson lost the world heavyweight championship in 1915. 
but one of his successors, well, his successor after Jess Willard, Jess Willard beat him. But when Jess Willard was defeated in 1919, who beats him? But the great Jack Dempsey, mm -hmm. the guy who, again, revolutionized a lot of boxing. So much of the stuff that we look at the boxing style. And, uh, and, and Jack Dempsey is often credited with putting more striking into boxing. You know, he's credited with, if you look at a lot of Jack Johnson's bouts, a lot of people are often surprised at how much grappling there is in you know, Jack Johnson. Mm. He works to Jack Johnson. You know, if we, it, it, you know, when, when we look at bare knuckle fighting today, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that that resembles the old style pugilism. You know, the mm -hmm. sort of stuff that Tommy Joe Moore teaches. You know, Tommy Joe Moore, you know, teaches uh, the, 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 you know, the 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 19th century style pugilism. But a lot of people mistake, and I've had these conversations with John uh, with uh, Tommy as well, um, and he agrees with me um, that. Uh, um, you know, the bare knuckle fighting you see today, whether, whether you're looking at the, the organized bare knuckle fighting or whether you're looking at the, the fights within the um, Parve or Romani um, uh, gypsy communities, um, they don't resemble what 19th century bare knuckle boxing looked like, the, what, mm. the, what the predecessor to glove boxing looked like. That's it. They could, they could throw and, and grab it. We've got some, some, some books about it, isn't it? They're showing the techniques that, you know, you got to hit us and stuff. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. That was happening, right? And bear in mind that although the Queensbury rules were only invented in um, in eight were invented in eighteen sixty seven, they didn't become mainstream until the eighteen nineties. So, so, so it's uh, you've got a long period of boxers crossing over there, and then, as I said, right up until right up until the time of Jack Dempsey, you know, right up until so for the first almost for the first two decades of the twentieth century. A lot of the boxing that you'll see there, whether it's um, Bob Fitzsimmons versus uh, Gentleman Jim Corbett or whether it's Jack Johnson's fights, um, all the boxers there, you'll see an awful lot of grappling going on, even though technically by the Queensbury rules, it's outlawed. In the Queensbury rules, it says no hugging, no clinching. You know, it's, it's in there. It's in the rules. You shouldn't be doing it. To this very day, we clinching is a part of modern boxing. You can't get away from it. And all boxing gyms will teach you to clinch. Even though it's not, even though it's technically banned, but back in the early part of the 20th century, if you look at those bouts there, that's probably the closest you're going to come to seeing footage of what some of the bare knuckle boxing looked like before then, with the throws taken out, should we say? Mm. But uh... I would like to introduce you to Magic Mind productivity shot that I started using a few weeks ago, and I feel great. Um, it's got a slow releasing caffeine with the matcha tea, nootropics, mushrooms, and lots of goodies tastes nice and helps me to focus on the day. Helps me to do my tasks, like recording this podcast. I'm staying sharp, staying focused, and overall I enjoy it. Magic Mind sponsoring this podcast and they would like to offer you a discount on a subscription. If you sign up for three months, you get a one month free and the link for that will be www.magicmind forward slash J-A-N anxious BB. Furthermore, if you want the 20% on uh, any purchase, you can use my uh, promo code on the checkout, which is anxiousbb20. You know, Thank you very much, Magic you know, Mind. I kind of uh, hope you feel like a bit of a uh, taking uh, away from the conversation of the um, circus. I kind of see very big similarity between karate and boxing from that era. Yes. But it seems to that the boxing went into sport and modernizing everything, which karate cling to the tradition? Yes, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and one of the things I mentioned um, on one of my end of year podcasts was um, 
during some of the uh, learn from the fight service that I offer. So I do like mm -hmm. a, 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 an online Zoom private lesson service where we look at the history of, of, of fighting, uh, history of sport, of uh, combat sports, and we analyze fights. And there's a lot of different ways that we could do that with the lessons. But we, we got to 1959 Muay Thai. And we looked at Muay Thai, how some of the changes has happened. I mean, the changes in Muay Thai from the 1930s through to the 1950s is huge. You can actually, by decade, by the, you know, if boxing changes, the boxing change is 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 a fast, but it's still, it's quick, but it's still gradual. Do you know what I mean? Uh -huh. uh, 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 um, changes. It comes up to then sort of peaks in the 50s. You, Muay Thai changes dramatically. The Muay Thai of the 1940s, looks very different to the Muay Thai of the 30s and looks very different to the Muay Thai of the 50s. Mm. 1959 Muay Thai, though, before there were stricter rules on throws, um, there's actually a cross-buttocks throw in there, a perfect cross-buttocks throw on the footage that you can see. I can send you mm. a link to it. It's one of the videos we watched. And we paused it, and actually I took a screenshot of it to, to share, and it's a perfect cross-buttocks throw. It's like, you know, it looks like something out of Ian's, Ian Abernethy's um, uh, throws for strikers, you know, the hidden throws mm. of um, boxing, uh, karate, boxing, and taekwondo. It looks like that's a perfect cross-buttocks throw, which was a very common throwing technique in... Uh, uh, pre-gloves, pre-gloved uh, bare knuckle fighting um, uh, boxing, and it's also in in karate throws. Yes, you know the mm. cross body throws. So yeah. it's a move like that. So it's interesting just to, to, to see that. So yes, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think that's dictated by the gloves because you cannot grab properly with the gloves, right? So it's yeah. easier to punch than. Yeah, yeah, and the gloves have evolved as well. That's just it. The webbing. As we know, the webbing on the glove, part of the reason for that is to stop the gouging. You know, this is a mm -hmm. lot of fight, fighters like Harry Greb and things like that used to get used to gouging. And um, Jack Johnson and a lot of other fighters would use, because there were smaller gloves back in the day, there was like the, the three, you know, the three, you know, <laughs> was it the, um, uh, oh, the, the, you know, the, the three ounce gloves. You've got like three ounce, two ounce gloves, with mm -hmm. tiny little gloves with no webbing on the thumb. And so that allows for far more dexterous movement. So the thrust, so, so even then the grappling was, was a little bit more prominent in the in the gloved era. And there was gouging happening, but also thumb strikes to the liver and the kidneys were happening as well inside the clinch. So, you know, the gloves have evolved a lot as well over that period of time to stop you from doing that. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, that, that goes the same for boxing as, as also Muay Thai as well. Um, but yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I find it interesting that when you answer one of your questions on on uh, your end of year podcast, when you said that your base style you would like to choose would be wrestling. Mm. Uh, yeah, definitely. it's definitely definitely a subject I love to talk to you about on that one because obviously you know you you went to wrestling later, and um, just because I think that grappling and stand up clinch is a bigger part of martial arts than people realize. Um, only because grappling and wrestling are their primal arts for a start. Everybody instinctively knows how to grapple some way, you know, in, 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 and, and a lot of that is channeling that. We, it was probably the first form of combat that we did. I mean, if you look at animals, I mean, I know from growing up on the circus again, seeing bear cubs play with each other, even seeing dogs yeah. play and stuff like that, that you can see crude grappling moves there. You can see crude yeah. grappling positioning and, and stuff like that because it works, it's efficient and it works like that. But, um, and there's a few sort of revelations that have happened over the years when I've been, um, you know, listening to some and reading some very um, well-researched, well-read uh, martial arts um, historians uh, coming from both Asia and Europe. Um, and there was a, like an assumption that I think a lot of teachers had when we go back, if we go back about 100 years or so, 
there was an assumption a lot of teachers had that everybody already knew how to how to wrestle and grapple because it was very much more a part of everyone's life than it is yeah. now. So karate, for example, you've got Tagumi, obviously, and Okinawa and things like that, yeah. you know, which, you know, and you've got Funakoshi mentioning it and how how he thinks it's a very um important part of uh you know for a karateka to know. And you know, you have um, you know, with the katas and I mean again, this is not my this is not my wheelhouse by a long shot, but from an overview, um, from a as a cross-training martial artist, it makes sense to me that there would be an assumption that when you learn karate, you already knew how to wrestle, you already knew how to grapple, at least in at least in Okinawa, not not, mm. not necessarily in Japan, where you've got the separation with the jujitsu and the I, I think uh, the the Shima or Tegumi was taught in school in Okinawa for children anyway yes. as a, yeah. as a national sport. So exactly. I think that's why that's why the youth states dominates MMA now because everybody does a grappling in school. Absolutely, and it's and that's exactly with MMA. There's a you can that, that people have done this so many times when they've looked at the the greatest number of world champions within MMA on a percentage basis over a period of time have uh, um, a solid background in wrestling. You know, it's, 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 it's just, you know, it's there. And a lot of the time, you know, you get somebody who's a, who's a very competent wrestler and then you teach, and you teach them how to strike. You, you, cr you immediately create a very effective fighter. You know, it's mm. as simple as that. It's just, um, so yes. So you've got that happening in Asia. So you've got that happening with them. Um, and it's certainly, you hear a lot about that in a lot of the Chinese martial arts as well. I know, and I'm hearing a lot of, Funny enough, MMA teachers and people like Ramsey Dewey, you know, finding all this kind of thing or MMA coaches in China that are looking into Tai Chi and saying, you know, there's so many, there's so much grappling application in here. It's so obvious, you know, mm. in terms of the movement and, and how things were done. And when you look back at the history and you realize, oh, yeah, there's, there is just so much, you know, grappling, but also but there's so much grappling that people take it for granted. Back to that whole, you know, fish discover water last kind of, you know, uh, metaphor, if you like, and analogy. Mm. So European martial arts the same, you know, I, I'm, you're starting to hear some really um, interesting HEMA teachers who are saying, what are you guys are missing here when you're trying to um, resurrect uh, these extinct martial arts, these extinct European martial arts, is that uh, um, it, the assumption, you, you, when you read the text properly, you actually start hearing, you start seeing this little throw, throwaway phrases like, you know, wrestling should be part of your regular training. You know, wrestling mm. should be because because the knowledge and assumption straight away was that these these guys all knew how to wrestle. Mm. You, know, you know, so you look at the old fencing. I mean, when we look at fencing today. The sport of fencing today doesn't resemble anything like what dueling resembles. You know, or, or what what sword, what live blade work resembled in the past. Mm. Any more than points point sparring karate resembles what the sort of you know the combative looking out mm. karate early days of karate resembles. Uh, you know, it, it, so in the same breath, you know, you've got the European stuff where, you know, wrestling is just such a big part of it. And again, some of the HEMA uh, teachers are, in, are, are saying, look, guys, actually, what would be a good idea would be for you guys to part. I know it's all exciting. You're, you're covering all these different weapon styles and trying to work out all these weapons work. And you're bringing your own martial arts influences and experience in here to work. Out. But number one, how about everybody get a base level here and learn how to wrestle? Mm. Learn, learn the basics of wrestling and then go to learning how to use the weapons. Why? Because just about every one of those medieval and Renaissance and uh, early modern era 
uh, fighters who were learning fence, what we call fencing. Fencing was a very broad term in the past. Didn't just mean using a sword, you know, back in the past. Um, just like boxing didn't just mean empty hands, as we know. You know, we've got Jim Fig in the 1700s. Mm. They call boxing includes use of the back sword, use use of cudgels. It's all part of the same martial art, you know. And so a lot of the Europeans would, would be, um, you know, their assumption would be straight away, you know, you're wrestlers first, and then now we're going to teach you how to use the weapons on top of that. So mm. you'd already have that positioning and that knowledge, you know. So, and I think as well, the kid, kids would learn because there was nothing else to do. So they'd be fighting together, boys. So you naturally learn the moves. Yeah, ex exactly, exactly. So we're trying to often transport. We're not understanding context, are we? So when we're looking at these mm. things. So therefore, you end up, if you don't do that, as with what happened with karate, a lot of Chinese martial arts, martial arts in general, who, who, when you're taking an art that comes from a society and a culture that has an assumed level of competency in grappling and you just take it and, and then they've learned to martial art on top of that whether it's a weapon art whether it's a strike-based martial art whatever it is on top of that if you take that away that kind of and you plant it on somebody who hasn't got any of that base grappling knowledge then you start taking it goes in a, you start with a false premise don't you, you and so mm -hmm. therefore you're going to start making very unusual shapes and then you're going to be and what's going to happen is then people are going to start going well that doesn't seem to work so therefore that's got to go, you know, then they'll start bringing in other things. And then what you end up with is like, no, no, well, well you're not ending up with what the art that you expect, you're, you're supposed to be doing. Why? Because you start with a false premise. You're not starting with that base grappling knowledge. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, it's exactly. I mean, so boxing up until the gloves were introduced, um, you know, had an awful lot of grappling in there. I mean, again, Tommy Joe Moore pointed out in my interview with him that also remember the nature of the throws in boxing would be quite different to wrestling. You know, the nature, even though the throws might technically be the same, when you throw somebody in a, in a bare knuckle boxing match, you're throwing them to hurt them, mm. not throwing them to pin them. Because every yeah. time someone goes down in a bare knuckle boxing bout, they get 30 seconds to recover. Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of, you know, savvy writers of the, of the bare knuckle era who would write things where they, they could see someone smaller using slip, what they call like slipping tactics. And I mean slipping, I don't mean slipping a punch. I mean, there'll be a fighter. If, you, if, you're, if you're a lighter fighter and you're up against a heavier guy, you would um, typically go in, throw your shots, and, and, and then as soon as possible, go down. Because then you get 30 seconds to recover. And oh. the bigger guy now has got more weight to move around. So, so you damage him, damage him really, really hard. And you don't, there's no points. It's all it's all down to who's who's the last guy standing. You know, you mm -hmm. fight until the other person can can't continue. So how do you beat a bigger guy? Well, you just keep you you just make him having to keep walking around the ring, keep walking around. Not that it's not a ring, but the the, the area, the the the, mm -hmm. the um the outside training, but the outside uh, fighting area. Uh, and they would um and, and yeah, a lot of so you 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 read that, and you read journal, journalists who know that when these people are slipped inverted commas, they're actually going down on purpose as a tactic. To, to get the other so the other guy has to you know uh um ties out ties out basically you know causes the damage then he goes down off a lot off a really low um light punch or slips takes 30 seconds goes back on the other guy now has to you know go around it that causes damage goes down again and that's kind of like part of the strategy so that's why these I fights go on forever you know i should i should have used that when i was sparring with tommy yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> okay, so, okay, we're fighting Ben. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I wouldn't want to fight Tommy under bare knuckle rules. <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, it's an interesting thing. Uh, but yeah, um, anyway, 
so um the uh, yeah so if you want to bring it back to the, so the circus thing again so um yeah, yeah there was a couple of there was a couple of fighters that did come through uh, um let's say come through they were good friends of my grandparents and one was tommy farr who challenged who gave joe lewis one of the hardest fights during joe lewis was at his prime so joe lewis arguably the greatest heavyweight champion of all time again contentious thing but you know okay he's at least the guy who fought um uh, the most consecutive fights in defense of the world of the world championship so i think that's you know it's 1937 to 1949 he held the championship he fought or he never ducked a fight um i think he defended the title 25 times wow. you know and uh, so that's amazing and then and he's you know 15 round bouts he fought six fights in one year defending the title went on tour they call it bum of the month he defies you know there's a lot of stuff when you look at the Joe Lewis story um, that, that make you realize um, just how good boxing was, you know, in, in many respects. You know, there's um, there's a good argument to be made that boxing peaked in the 50s and slowly declined after that. Um, and, and a lot of that's down to the simple fact that the fighters then fought far more frequently than they, they do than they ever would do today. But anyway, um, Tommy Farr fought him and took him for the full 15 rounds. Um, after he beat Max Bear, uh, Tommy, uh, Tommy, who was the ex-world champion, he, uh, in order to qualify to fight um, Joe Lewis, um, he then fought uh, um, uh, James Braddock afterwards, who Joe Lewis had defeated to get the world championship, and he lost to him, and then he did a rematch with Max Bear, and he lost to him, but he fought within seven months. These fights are all happening within seven months, bear in mind. But he, that's, but no he type of that's no type of for recovery for a break. No, exactly, exactly. So that, that was Tommy Farr. I mean, Tommy Farr was working... Um, his mother died when he was nine years old, and his father died a few years later, so he became the main breadwinner for his family when he was about 13, where, where he was made to work down the Welsh mines. And uh, a lot of people thought used to think that he had this he had this bruising around his face. Like, I say bruising it wasn't bruising it was marks like dark marks he had around his face and his and also along his back. And people thought that come from his his boxing. I mean, he fought well over 100 bouts time, but it wasn't. It was actually from the mines. Yeah, he's from taking explosions in the face down the mines. Oh, wow. And all the stuff across his back, and he was doing that from about thirteen years old, going down these mines. But uh, you know, he fought his way. He fought his way up. I mean, his recorded number of fights. Um, I'd have to look at what, what it is on. I know it's well over a hundred, but a lot of people think that he that he fought uh, um, at least a hundred fights before he came again came up against Joe Lewis. He won the uh, the same year he'd won the British Empire Championship. But he became good friends with um, my family, uh, my, my grandparents. They, they they used to visit them all the time. I don't know if he fought in the boxing booths, and that's why. Um, it's probably likely that he did, because it was such a big thing at the time in the early part of the 20th century. Um, so he would have been, you know, um, he probably was friends with them in the... Uh, his boxing career sort of finished in the late 30s. So he was probably, he was probably uh, friends with them in the 40s when the circus was just getting bigger, and the 50s when it peaked... Um, when we had an eight pole tent my grandparents had then before they settled down where I'm talking uh, talking from now actually uh, 1959 but up to that point they had the, the like an eight pole tent and Tommy Farr was one of their regular um, friends and guests and, um, and my uncle apparently <laughs> said to him when he was a teenager um, uh, um, I think I could um, I, I, I think I could give you a good fight Tommy Right, right. <laughs> she said to him, and Tommy Farr said to uh, my 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 uncle went on to become um, a very famous um, well, within circles wild animal trainer. 
um, I died a few years ago. Um, and uh, he, he, my uh, Tommy Farr apparently said to my grandfather, don't ever um, always make sure that, that, that you keep that boy's confidence. <laughs> you know, he just said this to you know to Tommy Farr. Uh, and my, to be fair to my uncle, I mean he was a, a competent guy. I mean in terms of, of of fighting, he he was he learned how to fight on uh, um, on the on the circus. Um, I don't know who his boxing coach was, but I remember talking to him about it, and he said, um, again, this gives you an idea of how much boxing was like was very much considered to be a self defense system back in the time when he was training. So he was training in boxing probably in the he was born in the 40s, so he would have been, so yeah, it, it, about the 60s um, time is when he was doing his main boxing training. And he even, he even trained with Muhammad Ali's boxing camp when he went over to America to be on Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. But, um, he learned, but he said that when he was taught by his boxing coach, he said he learned a lot of dirty tactics. He said, he said, my boxing coach taught me how to defend myself. So it was taught like a martial art, you know what I mean, boxing. You know, so mm -hmm. And I went, what do you mean by that? I said, well, what? He, he taught you how to throw a few low blows. And I think I didn't know anything about dirty boxing tactics at that time at all. He went, no, thumbs in the eyes. And, 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 he, and, he, and he explained a lot of the stuff. And he, and he used it a lot in self-defense. Self he used it um, to disarm a, an armed gunman. It's on one of my podcasts um, mm -hmm. in Ireland. Um, I don't know if you heard that one at all, but it'd been in one time. Mm -hmm. Now, well, in, in Ireland, um, uh, the whole story is on, on one of my podcasts anyway, but uh, uh, basically... We, when... We're going we're gonna to link it in there. If you send me links, yes. I'll put it in the description yeah. and then people yeah. and I myself can catch up on it. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Okay, good. It, well, yeah, he, he, he disarmed an armed gunman over in Northern Ireland and, and, and chased two, two, two robbers off, essentially. Uh, and, um, and again, a lot of down to his boxing skills. Um, he... he um, there's a there's a note from my mum's diary from the 1960s uh, where they they were they were touring South Africa the the Chimpfield Circus and um, uh, we've got uh, a diary entry from 1966 um, on the 12th of October and um, essentially um, her her brother um, uh, along with the circus pickpocket because there's an act called well, you had a pickpocket an act where um, you know a guy comes out. Uh, essentially, he he picks everyone's pockets, not everyone's, picks different people's pockets and then goes in the ring and people don't realise they've had their pocket picked and he starts showing everybody in front of all the audience where they've taken everyone's pockets and gives it back mm. to them. And he has people in the ring and people can't, you know, and he's always doing that. His guy was, this guy was called Gentleman Jack. He was also a magician, um, but he was a boxer as well. He Again, he trained as a boxer as well. Uh, another guy. And anyway, over in South Africa, um, uh, um, uh, they, they, they went and visited another circus. So it was like Chipperfield Circus and then there was Wilkie Circus. And that really was the only two circuses going in South Africa at the time. Um, and uh, they're on their way back from visiting this other circus and they were held up by four people. So four people stopped the car. And, 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 and uh, they, they, they defended themselves and uh, not a scratch on, on our guys. Um, but they might include my uncle. So uh, my uncle gave one of these guys a broken nose. Um, one of his, uh, one of his uh, 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 friends gave him uh, another one, four broken ribs. Um, uh, Gentleman Jack, this, this um, pickpocket, uh, bashed this guy's ear. And then uh, the, and their fourth guy in their group sprained the other guy's wrist. Uh, but they, didn't, they, didn't, they, they then discovered that the four youths were the police. 
right. It's four people are supposed to be, we're holding them up. We're actually playing close police officers. <laughs> okay, and, they, and they completely kicked the crap out of them, basically. But again, that was all the boxing, you know, again, that was that, that sort of mm. boxing background training. The other person who was on the circus was the light, world light, lightweight champion, light heavyweight champion, sorry, Freddie Mills. So um, Freddie Mills, and it's actually, um, uh, I appreciate this podcast, so it's not very good as a, uh, for visual aids. That's right. I'm going to put on YouTube as well. Oh, okay, cool. Okay, well, in uh, Freddie Mills's autobiography, 20 years, mm -hmm. okay, so he's the light heavyweight champion um, in 1948, he, he beat Gus Lesnovich for that. Um, but in this particular edition, if I can find it, um, he, um, yeah, here we go. Um, so, Okay. Um, moment. He he um, he he went back to the show and um, he he. Uh, there's actually some. Uh, if I can find them now, uh, I can send you the pictures for links anyway. But uh, but but yeah, he took some. Um, he, he took photographs of visiting the show again. Um, and uh, we, yeah, I'm sure I've got some because the reason why because Freddie Mills, early days, he fought in the boxing booths on Chipperfield Circus on, uh, on the on the fairground part of the Chipperfield Circus. So you know, that's how we know the background. But there's, um, I can send you links to the pictures anyway. Um, sure. I, I think that the the circus before internet was a kind of a good way to get the people's attention and put your name down there. We know that Oyama went to States as well doing the shows, the wrestling shows and, and demonstrations. Yes. Yeah, the other, yeah, exactly. We know the link that the Gracies were circus promoters. Mm. Gracies were actually circus promoters. And, oh, wow. the, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the, and uh, 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 Carlos Gracie, senior um, instructor, um, was a judica from the Kodokan, um, mm -hmm. but he was working um, as a as a catch wrestler on the circus, mm. uh, so so, so um, yeah. So and the Gracies were we, yeah yeah were, were running a circus. I, mean, I don't know much about uh, Brazilian circus families, but uh, but if they were running a circus there. Then then they were then they were a circus family. So they, so effectively Brazilian jiu jitsu owes some of its creation not just to judo, but actually to catch wrestling. And a lot of people mm. don't think about that. So, you know, we think about the tr easy transi transition to the no-gi. You know, the assumption there is, oh, well, they were just fighting the, um, uh, you know, the Brazilian wrestling, the um, uh, uh, the name of it escapes me at this precise moment. Okay, but there's, there's a specific... Uh, 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 Luta, uh, Luta Libre? Sorry? Luta Libre? Luta Libre, yeah, Luta Libre. Yeah, yeah. The reason why I'm careful about that is because it sounds very similar to Mexican pro wrestling. <laughs> okay, but Luta, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but Luta Libre, yes, that's right. So the assumption is, is that they were just in challenge matches for Luta Libre um, fighters and, and that was it. But it, it, a lot of the no-gi stuff, of course, would come from uh, the catch wrestling training that was also part of their, part of their training. It wasn't just, it wasn't just judo. Obviously, judo was the main route and the main sort of mother, mother or father art, if you like. Um, but the catch wrestling is definitely in there. And that's the reason why there's, you know, you, you see a lot of that as well. So, you know, catch wrestling is responsible for spawning, uh, you know, several different martial arts. I mean, freestyle wrestling probably comes from catch wrestling. Um, mm -hmm. they, they, just took, they just took the locks and holds out of it. Um, uh, the um, uh, um, uh, um, uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, as we've just mentioned, that comes from, mm -hmm. that comes from catch wrestling. And, um, You've also got 
um, and I said, uh, there's, there's a fair degree of MMA coming from catch, but also you've got pro wrestling as well. The, the mm -hmm. pro wrestling, its direct lineage comes from uh, catch wrestling because early pro wrestling was catch wrestling. That's exactly what people were watching. Yeah. But, you know, Ed, the trouble is, you got Ed the Strangler Lewis putting people in a headlock for five hours. Ball that was boring the hell out of audiences. So they, they, they so wrestling became less aesthetically appealing. I mean, this is the whole thing with boxing, isn't it? A lot of the boxing stuff as well. Mm. Once there's more striking and there's more rules prohibiting clinching. Um, you know, the audiences start growing for it. So people fell out of favour with watching wrestling bouts. They must have been a lot more patient in the past. That's all I, I have to say. Uh, you know, there might be more appreciation because they've been doing it themselves. Yeah, I, yeah, probably more along those lines because of that. Exactly. So the patients would have grown from from having it around them, and they, they would. Well, it's like it's a bit like um, you know, there are sports. For example, um, uh, in the book The Pajama Game, um, all about the history of judo. Uh, uh, Mark, uh, um, the, the uh, there's a there was a quote taken from people watching the Olympics, a journalist watching the Olympics who wasn't into martial arts at all, and the judo was. Was, was put on in the middle of the night um, and they said uh, judo sport that's so boring that the competitors have to wear pajamas <laughs> so so, so and, and we know that and funny thing is is that when I've got clients now I mean I don't teach any gi stuff but but when I have clients now doing submission grappling their appreciation for, for watching grappling just has just grown you know mm. prior to that they said they actually said to me so it's so different so before I'd watch people grappling and I wouldn't know what the hell's going on Mm. Uh, and it would just look messy and scrappy. They said, but now I'm doing submission grappling. It becomes really exciting. So, uh, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is very much a participation sport. It's, mm. it's doubtful, certainly under the rule set it's got now, uh, it, you know, just like judo, that it's ever going to be this mainstream. Um, it, it's a good reason why these sports aren't professional sports, you know, that they're, they are amateur sports because um, – your lay viewer can't really get into it. They can't because they've been mm. detached from it. They end, people understand percussive impact better than they understand, you know, the grappling. Yeah. MMA just gives you kind of that other area, if you like, but they but people have a better appreciation for looking at percussive impact than they do grappling. Grappling with the average person. But if you're this in was, yeah. This was the, the main concern and kind of a drive for changes in wrestling when I was in Poland and I've been involved yeah. with that Olympic yeah. movement. Every meeting was how we can make it more excitable, how it's no boring. So let's change this, let's change yes. that. And some things didn't make sense from a point of view of wrestler. Yes. But it makes sense. Oh, it's going to be more spectacular. I'm glad you've made uh, made that point because to me that ties back into the whole thing about the circus and the martial art connection. Because we go back to performance. I think uh, there is, um, it's a thing a lot of martial artists don't like to admit. Or, or are very unaware of is that the, the strong connection between performance and martial arts performance mm. martial artists have been performers and performers have been martial artists um in every country um throughout history the the, the there, there, there is a need you can see it you can see it through the ancient um texts the ancient um, evidence we have that bouts are being geared towards being entertaining what's the spectacle people want to see the spectacle mm. the romans kind of ruined the greek art of boxing because they that they started putting the kiestas on, you know, the the, the the knuckle duster kind of thing, the gloves that became more and more, and and then became more gladiatorial, and then people went, okay, mm -hmm. we want to see gladiatorial bouts because they're far more violent than watching, you know, the, the boxing bouts, and 
So the, the, there's a lack of appreciation for that. Then you have, and again, maybe a lot of the spectators there, you've got, whereas the Greek um, background probably had a far stronger connection with uh, the sports that were being done there, like again, with the wrestling, everyone, mm. you know, probably wrestled far more, you know, in, in, uh, in uh, Rome, you've got the bigger detachment with the aristocracy and um, the, the, uh, the Rome equivalent of the middle classes and so on. You've got far more detachment from people doing war arts. Therefore, to mm. them, it's more entertaining to watch gladiators than it would be to watch two people wrestling, two people yeah. working within a particular art of that. So, again, it, it all feeds back to there. But performance is very much a part of it. And again, as I said before, Jack Dempsey, you know, the guy who who, who brought more striking to boxing, who made boxing a more sort of um, uh, from a... From a um, spectator a lay spectator point of view a far more exciting game um was a performer himself um you know uh, it's it's um, he was a, you know he performed as a minstrel believe it or not you know he was a clown wow. he performed as a clown this is just it yeah exactly these are things that people don't take into appreciation you know, so and again go back to jack johnson and you see his tour would be one day he was wrestling one day he was doing a boxing exhibition next day he was doing um you know musical uh, he was doing a musical comedy routine you know, this was often part of it. When I interviewed um, one of the people uh, for my book, The Legend of Salt and Sauce, the uh, the book on the on the circus elephants and the musical elephants, uh, one of the trains a circus person, and he he grew up in a very um, a very small circus, large circus family, but small circus. Pretty much the whole family did the circus. It's like a one pole tent back in the early part of the twentieth century. But part of the entertainment was watching a boxing match. So you'd watch your, the, the, all the acts. So there would be all the family doing different types of acts and performance. They'd have one guest act. That would be the, the only person who wasn't part of the family. And you'd watch that. And again, as I said, almost interchangeable with a, with a fair. But you've got kind of got a circus tent happening in the fair. So it's kind of a circus within the fair. Sort of thing. And then at the end, it would be a boxing match. And often these boxing matches would be with kids. And uh, from the age of eight, this guy who I was into, who I was interviewing, was having boxing matches with the local kids who could come up and challenge him. From the age of eight upwards, hard times. Okay, mm. and if nobody would come up and fight him, he'd have to box with his brother. Oh, and he'd have to have a match with his brother, which leads me to a few. And again, he was a very competent um, fighter from a self-defense perspective. We have got evidence not only from what he was telling me in the in the interview, but also from an observer, a guy called Rupert Croft Cook, who wrote a book called The Circus Has No Home, that was talking about the same circus family from which he was coming from. And he talks about a situation where these brothers just, just were, um, essentially, they had sisters and uh, some, some guys were getting a bit, a bit friendly with, with, with the girls and the girls weren't interested and the brothers stepped in and they cleared the bar. Oh, wow. like about five brothers who just completely cleared the bar you know, just because they how proficient they were again but if you imagine day in day out you are every day you are not only performing acrobatic routines you know to a level that people are willing to pay money to watch you you know so mm -hmm. you know so you know often and this is the days before safety nets and uh and uh um uh, what do you call it um you know, safety harnesses or anything like that, you know, acts where you could you could disable yourself straight away or kill yourself. You know, they're doing this day in, day out. Plus, they're getting involved in boxing matches mm -hmm. every day. So that's that's their life. You know, And then they're getting involved with like, looking after animals and cleaning out the animals, working with elephants, stuff like that. You know, it's a lot of hard work. So, you know, they built those kind of people. But despite knowing all that, 
and looking at what I know about pro wrestling, back in back in the day, there was uh, this generation of uh, of pro wrestlers who were dismissing the next generation of pro wrestlers about them being staged. They were saying, you know, mm-hmm. back in our day, our matches weren't staged. You know, you guys are all just a bunch of, you know, performers. You're just a bunch of actors. You know, you didn't. Re- Very unfair because you know most pro wrestlers. Not all, but but most pro wrestlers will learn effective will learn catch wrestling, will learn a form of mm. catch wrestling, and they will compete. They will fight with each other. A lot of and there's a, there's a good number of people who are amateur wrestlers who who then get turn into go to pro wrestling, and there's no shame in that. But my view is that even before the earliest examples of which we have got of pro wrestlers throwing matches, 1925 was the first world championship where it was we know it was a staged worked is the word staged they don't, they don't like that term but worked is the word you know as in you've got to you know who the who the winner's going to be mm-hmm. but i can't believe that all the matches before that weren't didn't have some degree of people throwing stuff and i believe the same thing happened with boxing as well a lot mm-hmm. of you can't be boxing a hard fought match every single day you know you've yeah, got yeah. to be there's got to be some kind of agreement that's going on particularly if you're fighting members of your own family you know every day that's got to be it's got to be a sparring match. You know, you're just going in there. Yeah, going, yeah. yeah, yeah, we're going to spar. And not just sparring, but also, you know, because you can spar. But if you're sparring in front of lots of people and you've got, you know, that kind of pressure going on, you can bet your bottom dollar that, you know, can you imagine going in there and then the next day you've got to do, you've got to do a, a, a trapeze act and your face is all completely mushed up. Mm. You know, you've got a big swelling on your eyes and all the rest of it. So you can imagine it would be like a case of, look, okay, we're sparring tonight. We know what's going to happen. Okay. And you'll end up starting to work out things like, okay, jab cross. I'm going to duck under that hook, catch you with that. You're going to come back mm. with, you know, there'll be like, you're going to see that kind of stuff going on. I'm not saying. Yeah. The longevity thing, isn't it? You, yeah, you exactly. Be... So, and you see it happening in vaudeville and stuff like that. So I'm not saying that ch- the challenge matches definitely were a part of it. And they did happen and they were very competent fighters, but there was, I definitely believe that even some of the greatest, you know, progress today, Gotch and Hackenschmidt and stuff like that. I believe that a good a good number of their matches would have had to have been worked in order to have that longevity. You know, to have that all the time. You can, you know, you're fighting people. You don't know who you could be fighting coming out of the audience and things like mm. that on a regular basis as well. So all that adding in. So you know, sometimes there's a bit of snobbery that goes on, and it happens within the martial arts world as well. Yet so many martial arts have connections to performance. Wing Chun has connections to performance. We know about the. Um, you know, there's their 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 their, their theatre society that they that were connected to. You see all the stuff going on with the Peking Opera School and the um, you know the you know, various Chinese opera schools and Chinese circuses and things like that, and where they have a lot of a lot of martial arts performance involved mm. there. We know that martial arts teachers used a lot of performance to draw people in. You know, to do a demonstration before the days yeah. of the internet, before the days of television, before the days of even the printed press. You've got you you you're a trained martial artist. You've you're, war, you're no longer going to war. You can't get maybe a job as a bodyguard because all the jobs have been taken or something. Um, mm. so you go, okay, what am I going to do? Okay, well, I'll, I'll, t- I'll run a class because just like in the UK, there are plenty of civilians who want to pay money, particularly from the sort of middle to upper classes who are going to say, I- 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 we're scared of getting attacked, you know, so therefore teachers' skills that you've taught, okay, we'll run a school. How do we draw people in? Well, we're going to do stuff that's going to be uh appealing so you know you, you can find stuff in the early part of the 20th century of footage of chinese martial artists doing very performance-based techniques things that are clearly not practical you know there's, there's, mm. there's footage of people in markets uh doing doing sword routines that you can see are not practical they're they're they're, they're striking really contrived 
poses, you know, the poses are very much there. And then you've got, it's even like, I, I would even take that as far as breaking. You know, the breaking that we see that, you know, that, that comes through in karate and then, and obviously taken to huge lengths, both in Kyokushin, but it's certainly in the Korean martial arts. I mean, yeah. Korea seemed to completely embrace that, that side of karate. Because uh, I, I was constantly looking and saying, where's the origin for this? Where's the origin for this breaking? You know, this, this whole concept of testing yourself against breaking things, because it's not mm. all martial arts. But you notice that you start seeing in the in the late part of the 19th century and this is just a hypothesis you know i can't i'm not i'm not i'm not, I'm not basing this on a, on a, a huge amount of concrete evidence but it seems to make sense to me you've got now this move towards health certainly happening in in europe you know people have got more prosperity people mm. are more interested in health that's really a lot of the health phases start there don't they a lot of the diet fads a lot of the yeah. diet cults a lot of the good and bad stuff coming out of there and you've got a movement to and then you know part of showing that you're successful starts becoming that you're healthy you know this is this is interesting you know i talk about some of that in the yoga myth um on my um on my podcast so i talk about a lot of people's perceptions about yoga you know that it's like an exercise routine of of far detached from what yoga has been for thousands of years you know it's not it's been a spiritual practice mm. often with very little relationship towards any sort of physicality or stretching or anything that that kind of stuff only sort of comes through one particular sect of yoga and then and then only in the 20th century does that become something else but anyway late late 19th century we've got this move certainly in the west and you're seeing it coming through all the colonies of um you know People who are wealthy are also healthy. Uh, they're interested in, in in making themselves physically stronger. That you know, gymnastics is taking off. You know, you've got all this kind of interest in doing that. But part of it then goes into showmanship, and then you've got the strongman routines. And mm. what do strongman routines involve? Breaking chains, breaking yeah. breaking blocks of wood and stuff like that. We have it cracks me up because I look at a lot of routines that people would show me with martial arts and go, oh, this is traditional, like chopping things across people's bodies and that to show the, 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 the control, you know, when they do that on the demonstrations and they go, oh, this is ancient, you know, traditional method. And I'm going, that's interesting because I've got some footage from 1950s on our circus of, uh, of a woman doing what we would call a fakir act. That's a term appropriated from um, a Muslim uh uh, uh, a religious um sort of mystics you know but from the muslim religion they call them fakirs they used to call them fakirs um but they it ended up becoming a, a catch-all term for a type of act where people would lie on the beds of nails mm -hmm. and have people stand on them and they 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 put their face in broken glass and they'd lit but but you know the um uh, you know uh, hot coals and um bend bars on their throats and all that sort of thing they're all fakir acts and tricks mm -hmm. So this is all part and parcel. This sort of came in, it, 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 it came in through, A, people who were mystics, you know, so they were on the street trying to push their particular religious practice or just to make money because they were nomads and, you know, they were they needed to make money to, 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 to eat. Uh, and and they in order to part of that, they would do some of these tricks. And these were fakir tricks. So they called them, they called mm. them fakir tricks. And then suddenly you start seeing the same tricks turn up in martial arts. Um, uh, and yeah. as part of the way to demonstrate it. So the breaking the boards is like breaking the chains. The strongman routines become not only strongman competitions, but also bodybuilding. That all comes out of that. And they're yeah. all things that are shown in the circuses and carnivals. And again, and these are all things that you then start seeing, breaking boards. And because, you know, you look back at some of the older texts um, uh, from, you know, pre-20th century texts on martial arts, and there's not 
I can't really find anything on, on, on breaking. Can't find much at all on people smashing boards and breaking bricks and breaking stone and tests of strength like that. Yeah. None of that stuff's there. But there's definitely a need to perform in yeah. a way of advertising. And it's ended up becoming, it's interesting how now, so you'll have certain martial arts, certainly Korean martial arts, where breaking boards are now become a traditional part of your grading. Mm. And yet it's probably an advertising gimmick. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so it's like... Well, it, it looks yeah. good. I think it looks good, right? If you can break 10 boards and somebody can out, it's... it's yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. But we've now then decided to now recreate our history and go, actually, no, this is an ancient test of strength. This is an ancient, mm. ancient test of, of focus. And, and you can hear people coming up with all these different reasons for why you should do it or why it's because it doesn't have transferable skill to other areas. Debatable. You know, boxers don't need to break boards, and yet they're the biggest yeah, person yeah, I, in the world. You know, I personally I, hate breaking, so I don't believe in that. No, no I'm not interested in it. I absolutely not. I've no interest in whatsoever. But it's been associated through martial arts, and I believe it's come through the advertising. And I believe that, that mm. that's, you know, and that's where it's and it's, it's come through. It's an advertising gimmick, which has come connected to show business, which therefore is connected to fairground, street entertainment, circus. You know, and and, and that's again that connection. I think I think we can say easily that if you can perform. It makes you easier to catch the people's attention, yeah. And that's what the most successful martial arts, Oyama, yeah. other people, yeah, have been good, good at. They've been oh good yeah, at Look at advertising with the bulls and everything. You know, they're cutting the horn off with the bull. Mm. Yeah, definitely a showman. There's, there's no doubt about it. It's great. The showmanship out of all, a lot of the great martial artists, and they, they're very aware of that to this mm. day. You know, so it's always you know. So when you you hear this thing where. You know, a lot of martial artists are quite snobbish about uh, either martial artists who get involved in a form of performance or performance-based form performance-based martial arts. And you're going, they actually have a shared history. You know, you know, whatever mm. art you look at, there's a shared history. Wrestlers of old, the ones that you would revere, were often you'd find were were often clowns, were often musicians, were often performing people like that. You know, and would also throw probably more fights than you would like to admit. The same with boxers, including mm. the great Jack Dempsey. Right, Jack Dempsey appeared in blackface as a minstrel, as a clown, you know, uh, you know, but back in the days on on, on traveling shows, you know, and uh, you know, so he then went on to become an actor. Joe Lewis went on to become an actor, you know, to perform to, and a lot of boxers quickly became, um, you know, when, when you know when their careers were getting, um, when either their careers were over or even when the height of their fame, like Primo Carnero was world heavyweight champion. I think when he was when he appeared in Mighty Joe Young. Have you ever seen the film Mighty Joe Young? The, no, uh, I don't think so. It's one of the better King Kong clones. Um, you know, no, so right. came out in the nineteen forties. Um, I am. I love all those those scenes. So Willis O'Brien animated film, um, uh, Mighty Joe Young, and they they did a remake, a really bad remake of it once. But uh, in that film, Primo Carnera is there, the world heavyweight, and playing himself as the world heavyweight champion oh, in a tug of war competition with this giant giant gorilla. You know, so it's uh, it, it, that's a, that's that's a nice transition to movies. Yes. What's your take on? Uh... Bloodsport. Oh, Bloodsport. <laughs> oh, there's so much take on Bloodsport, isn't it? I like it that you also mentioned that it, it in effect, was an Enter the Dragon um, copy, which, which, it, which, mm. it, which I never saw at the time. Funny, at the time when I heard people saying, oh, this is just a remake of Enter the Dragon, at the time when I got into Bloodsport, I was completely sold on the ninja myth. I mean, mm. so the ninja, so when I saw, uh, you know, it happened at the right time for me, as far as that was concerned, or the wrong time, if, if you want to think about the, the the rabbit hole it sent me down on. Because I was convinced that ninjutsu was the best martial art ever. 
that these were the closest we had to superheroes. I was going to learn it. It was going to be great. You know, uh, it, it, it was all this coming. Kind of thing. But I, I mean, again, I was pursuing performance in, in the circus afterwards, you know. Um, but at the time, it was all that. And then Bloodsport came out. Um, well, well it, we all heard about it at school, you know. As you know, we were too young to be watching Bloodsport in our mm. generation, but that's why it was so appealing to see it, you know. So, and I'd hear everyone talking about it at school, going, oh, this is this karate film, they'd say, you know, and I'd go, oh, yeah, it does this scene happens where, you know, when Michael Kesey's uh, character gets his uh, knee cut, uh, um, cut yeah. open with, with a kick from um, uh, Bolo Yum. And, uh, uh, you know, they're all talking about that, this scene. I was going, okay, I've got to get this now. And I watched it. And then at the end of the film, you get you get this very, very dubious, controversial um, uh, uh, text at the very, very end <laughs> about Frank Dukes, you know, you know, all the Frank Dukes stuff comes out. Okay, it's a true story. I knew it. And yeah. I was going, I knew it. And it's ninjutsu that, that he was doing and all the rest of it. So it was like, for me, it was like, oh, man, this is great. It was all like, so it really proper um, emboldened me to, to, you know, to be get involved with ninjutsu and all this sort of thing. And then I found out, you know, so much, how so much of this was all bullshit. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and it's just, it's just terrible. But, you know, there's so much, there. but as a film, yeah, it's, you, you can't, the nostalgia, um, absolutely. It may, it, it did, it, it, it's, you can't deny its influence. You know, mm. you know, not only obviously on, on Van Damme's career, but to this day, you know, the people people have so much affection for that film. So, you mm. know, it definitely inspired our generation of martial artists. So a lot of them can talk about it in the same way as the generation before them talk about Into the Dragon. Yeah, yeah. I think I think for me, because I've seen it first, I've seen yeah. it before Enter the Dragon. Yes. And, you know, but I think the choreography and fighting scenes yeah. are still holding up the to the test of time. I rather watch that than actually we've been watching yesterday with Anna, D'Artagnan, new D'Artagnan, new Three Musketeers. Oh, right, I haven't seen it. Yet. And <laughs> and they've got the fighting scenes where the camera runs around, oh, shaking, yeah, yeah. like it's just hiding people's lack of skills and makes me hear the headache. Well, it's funny enough, but I remember talking to Andy Norman back in the day when he was involved with the fight choreography on um, uh, Batman Begins. He was also involved with uh, The Dark Knight as well. Um, and uh, you know, the Casey. Um, yeah. and, uh, and, um, and, and I said to him, I said, um, in Batman Begins, I said, um, I, 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 I couldn't follow the fight scenes. I said, that's the trouble. And he said, I couldn't agree with you more. He said, that, that was a problem. Mm -hmm. I really, he said, I had talking with the cameraman, talking with the director, saying, you can't see what's going on. You just can't see, it's just like what's going on. It's just a, this big, uh, you know, crazy, you know, mesh of stuff that's going on in the fight scenes. And you're not, you can't actually appreciate what's going on with it. I think Bloodsport, you know, in terms of fight choreography, it's, um, it's mixed, should we say. It certainly has its own aesthetic. You know, if you look mm. at Bloodsport, it's and that's Frank Dukes's influence. To be fair, I mean, to give give him credit for whatever everyone wants to say about him as you know the other part of Frank Dukes, he he was a big influence over the fight choreography in that film, and it does have its own. It's 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 got its own flavor that you really again it, it has an influence over some of Van Damme's later films, obviously because Van Damme's very much sort of combines ballet with bodybuilding. Mm. You know, just like yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, he he understood. He was very, very shrewd on how to sell himself, you know, and how to how to stamp his. And he he gave a very unique look. He, he knew exactly how to, and that's we that was his, you know, whole his whole USP comes out in Bloodsport. You see that, mm. and he kind of worked that into into the other films. Honestly, limited him in the end. But for Bloodsport, it's actually probably the one of his best show reels up until you get into better directors handle him. 
Mm-hmm. But the fight scenes are very unique. I think I, I find they're quite. You don't get any um, undercranking like you like you were seeing a lot. You know all the fast fast motion stuff. You know mm-hmm. which you know used to annoy me. Um, and a lot of the kung which can, comes through a lot of the kung fu movies. Um, you get probably a little bit too much slow motion here and there. But this this uh, the performances are great. I mean, in in, in you know you get all the you know the, uh, the characters you know you can get into all the different characters that, that are in there and i think that mm. that makes up for good you know for good fight scenes so i'd say mixed in, to, to a certain appeal but it, you can't deny the entertainment value you know and, and I, I i love that movies well it's particularly for for van damme you know you've got a different um styles coming in and it's like a you know yeah test of Who's yeah. the best martial art, and you can see the different flavors, and it's just exciting for everybody. Can kind of relate to it. Oh, I do kung fu. There's yeah. kung fu guys. Yeah, and this is all I pre. This is all pre UFC. So again, this is in many ways it's an insight into what the martial arts world thought thought a mixed martial arts fight might look like. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's probably oversimplifying. I'm pretty sure that a great number of martial artists would say, "No, of course we didn't think it was. It, it, it looked like that." But a lot of people. Sort of coming in a novice level, should we say, to martial arts, and we're, and we're like martial arts fans. They thought it would look like that, and and it's a wonderful sort of, you know, it's a window into that time, you know, you know mm. which you see with blood sport. Well, I, I I thought it's gonna look like that because that was just before I started training, so I was convinced it's gonna be like that. So me too, me too, me too. And I often I did believe this whole thing about this style counters this style, or this style mm. versus that style, and one style's going to be better and, and all this sort of thing, you know, got the, you know it was not. And, um, you know, okay, overall, um, with the exception of um, one or two of the actors, not 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 the greatest um, example of acting all around. It's not what you're watching the film for. But for the actual performance, when you get to the, the fight choreography, uh, and, okay, I know it's over, you know, it's hyper-realistic and all the rest of it, but there is a there is a sort of a dynamic, you know. Pro, you know, pro, a pro wrestler would watch that and say, "There's great psychology going on." And so, in, in, mm. in pro wrestling, they call it psychology. Um, it, it, you know, it's uh, it, and that's what you're seeing between the different characters. You know, this um, because you 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 start liking characters that you really don't know outside of the fight, like the mm. monkey, the, the monkey style kung fu guy, for example. <laughs> yeah. Everybody loves him. You know, we all we all yeah. love him, but we don't see him anyway. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't say a word in there. And when he yeah. gets when he gets beaten by the, you know, sort of, you know, sumo, the, I suppose the guy is supposed to be a sumo that you get that he gets mm. beaten, he gets crushed by him. It's like immediately we hate the sumo guy. So yeah. we want Van Damme to proper, so Van Damme proper tortures him when he fights him. So there's nothing going on here. He's not, the, the, the monkey kung fu guy's not, not, not friends with the Van Damme, Van Damme stroke Frank Duke's character. Um, it, he's not, you know, we haven't spoken to him. We've got no emotional investment in him other than watching his fight. And I think that is great. When I, was involved in doing martial arts performance that's what i really wanted to try and do i wanted to try and create a performance where you you could use martial arts to express character and personality mm-hmm. you know people would see that and the, and the, you know the fighting would tell that story and really good fight choreography does that good fight yeah. choreography can do that and so if you think about that with blood sport you think of which characters in there you know who you know who are your favorites who are a little fate you know outside of the frank dude's character obviously who are some of your favorites and some of them you'll be, you'll be people saying yeah oh actually um you know, they don't really say much or this person doesn't say a thing. And yet I really like that guy. You know, why? Mm. It's, it's because of just the way he is. It, yeah. it, it, it's, just, it's like that. And, that's, you know, I think that's, um, uh, and, and again, they, they tell good stories in, in, in the fight scenes. Um, I think some of it, you know, if, if I was going to pick it apart, you know, a lot of it's very stilted, very pro wrestling in, in, in sort of, in, in a way, you know, it's got that, that, that part of it as well. There's probably too much slow motion. Um, but, you know, 
you never get bored. You never get bored watching no. watching it. No, so yeah, yeah. No, Bloodsport was a firm favorite of mine as a kid. Definitely as a kid. Yeah. Yeah, same for me. Yeah. Um, changing the subject a little bit. Um, tell me about your new course with Mary, Animal Instinct. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, uh, back in the early days um, when Mary Stevens first booked me to do some uh, teacher consultation and teacher training, um, we we started talking about children's self protection, and uh, she was keen to run uh, some form of course within her own. Club. Obviously, she booked me to teach when parents aren't around, which is based on my book, which I still teach now. And teach which I'm which I'm selling it hard for you on, within my kids' classes. I think yesterday we sold two for you. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Much much appreciated. Um, I mean, well, don't, don't say thank you because it's a brilliant book, and if you've got children, this is the, the I think the only positions who covered everything that I was looking for, and I'm incorporating more and more with Max now and starting with Lauren, you know, this exercise is in shops, sending him yes. to ask people, yes. this is brilliant stuff. You know, you ask him now who you go to, Oh, I'm going to go to somebody in a, um, yeah. uh, like an officer outfit or mom with a kid. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, well, and that actually, that, that feeds into the sort of course that I'm, that I'm going to be running with Mary, which is a, a teaching course. So animal instincts, became because she because she, she she liked some of the the animal Im imagery that i was using so she said um you know um i haven't done a podcast I, I did a few podcasts called the way of i had the way of the bear and the way of the mm -hmm. way of the ape and the way of the uh, it was just a shortcut to discuss a certain topic within self-protection and martial arts where the shark for example was all about brazilian jiu-jitsu and uh, where the bear was all about uh parental roles with 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 with, with, with uh, um with, with people not just children, but also adults as well. There was an expression, actually, a Russian martial artist once said to me, a um, uh, Sombo guy, he, he said to me, um, uh, taking mummy away. He used to use this expression, taking mummy away. And so, uh, and I went, okay, I, I get what you mean there. What, what he meant was, was that that's that moment when somebody gets pressure tested for the first time. They've been doing martial arts or um, for a while, and they get pressure tested. And then there's a look on their face where where they suddenly feel totally vulnerable you know they've come out mm. of it and we've all been there to a certain degree and again I'm, you must probably delve into this a lot with the anxious black belt um mm. where, where suddenly people suddenly feel oh my god i've been training really hard and training to fight been you know i've got you know i've had all this uh affirmations of of my ability and then suddenly i'm getting pressure tested and suddenly i feel useless i feel like well mm. i've done some work or all this kind of thing sort of happens and the look on the face is what this um, Sombo um, martial artist told me, because taking mummy away, he used to call it, quite a brutal mm. term. And it stuck with me that. And I thought, yeah, that's what it is. I've seen that so many times. And I like to try and get into that as early as possible so that we can get people and then say immediately, right, we're going to help you overcome this because we've got to make you independent because self-protection mm. is all about independence. So children's self-protection is, is, that's one of the corner points of, one of the key points of, children's self-protection is about independence it's about telling children to take charge of their situation um mm -hmm. it takes mummy away so i had something i called wear the bear which um so mary saw that and said well why don't i do why don't we do badged courses um represented by different animals and they can represent different age groups and they don't have to be totally you know inspired by that particular animal but it's roughly that sort of area so you've got meerkats for example so that a meerkat would be four to seven year olds 
teaching them mm. to self, self protection. And the meerkat represents awareness because because mm. any animals that would talk about skills and awareness, the meerkat is fabulous. We have meerkats back here at my uh, my father's zoo, um, and uh, you see them. They go. They always they have sentries. They actually have sentries. They are so good with that communication on awareness. Mm. They know when dangers are coming, and they know how to collaborate really really well. So these are all, you know, things that, you know, Mary immediately picked up and said, well, that's that's so important at basic level when you're teaching children basic safety. And again, this this is really important because just as you were talking about, like just simple things like getting children to speak to strangers and under adult supervision and who they pick, who's the stranger they're going to pick to help help them. So they start understanding who allies are and all this sort of mm. thing. So what that's doing is, is getting parents to work with children. Because again, this was something I learned very early on when I was, when I was teaching children self-protection. Uh, I, I taught, um, I understood that if I was going to make a lot of the self-protection stick, I needed the parents on board. I, you know, and the last thing I wanted mm. was people treat, treating my classes like creches um, mm. or just another activity. You know, little Johnny's got, you know, little Johnny's got football on Wednesdays. He's got um, swimming on Thursdays and he's got martial arts on Mondays or something like that. You know, I don't want to be yeah. one of those sort of things. There. My view was like, when you take your child to me, it's like teaching your child first aid. It's like teaching your child um, basic survival skills. You know, this is what self-protection can be taught of. And these have to be behaviours. The skills they're learning have to be, the word is behaviour, you know, more so than the actual skill. And if that's going to work, I need the parents understanding exactly what I'm teaching and to be on board with me, but most importantly, to be wanting to be invested in reinforcing those behaviours back at home. Because there's no point if they're coming here for an hour and then you shut the door and it's all forgotten, you know, because it, and then expecting it to be pulled out the hat, which is, you know, a common misconception about martial arts for adults, let alone, let alone children. So I knew that yeah. was really, really, a really, really important part of it. So, again, so, you know, we've worked really hard to make this course that we're teaching. That we're, so, it's, so, it's, so as, a, as a teacher of this course, you would be able to have badged areas. So you've got the four to seven year olds meerkat. You've got the seven to 11 year olds um, come under rabbit. OK, so I did aware the rabbit one. And, you know, for me, rabbits represent all the, you know, I'm a big Watership Down fan. <laughs> you know, I love that Prince of a Thousand Enemies, you know, you know, mm. all that sort of thing. And it's all about tricks and evasion and all this sort of thing. So that's that sort of seven to 11 year old, you know, that is that, you know, the last years of primary school for a lot of kids. Um, they, you know, this is the period where they learn all about, avoidance, evasion, de-escalation, talking warning signs, um, loads of escape games. They get to use their agility. This is when their, their agility is really coming to a height, you know, with kids there. This is where they can mm -hmm. use size to their advantage. You know, it's one of the few advantages children have in, a, in an, uh, an assault situation is they their actual small size can work to their advantage, provided they understand how to productively use agility. You know, they know how to use, mm -hmm. use agility, they can switch and turn, they know where to head towards, they know how, how to head towards exit points, they know, you know, that they get used to moving around much larger people. These are all things that kids can do, you know, for escape. So you've got that, so that's rabbit. And then you've got 11 uh, to 16 year olds is bear, which then comes back to what I was talking to you about bear. That, so that's learning mm -hmm. independence. Um, why bear? Because bears are one of the best uh, parents in the animal kingdom. You know, bears are well known, you know, they nurture their young 
right up until adolescence, almost until young adulthood. You know, mm-hmm. uh, polar bears are fantastic mothers. So that's that whole taking mummy away. So bear, you learn independence more than anything else at 11 to 16 years old, which correlates with life. Uh, and then you've got the 16 years plus is chimera. So obviously that's mm-hmm. with my, marsh, my, my, uh, my approach, my brand is Club Chimera. So, um, and Mary chose all of those. I mean, to be, to be fair to her, she took it from things that I'd written and ideas that I'd, that I'd put forward, but it was her idea to have a badge system, her idea to turn those into different age groups. Um, and so, um, so, so the idea was like, okay, well, I've got when parents aren't around, that's my seminar. That's my, you know, that's a course I can just teach, um, you know, as a, anything from two to 10 hour course um, to children in anyone's club so people can book me now i've taught them these courses in denmark over in uh, ireland you know i've had people um, in other countries you know picking it up and taking it over over in japan i had somebody do a course for a a week's summer camp over in japan where the guy um the the teacher there had had uh, taken my book when parents aren't around bought copies for all the participants and he based his entire course on the when parents aren't around material so that's great so when parents aren't around is that but animal instincts are deeper dive. Animal instincts, you can provide anything from sort of a year to three years of uh, regular teaching, a bit like a bit like a, a, you know, a girl guide, boy scout, cubs kind of thing, if you like, in addition to martial arts teaching. So we separate self-protection from martial arts. You've got a whole mm-hmm. sort of thing. So if you're a karate instructor, and I see a lot of teachers struggle with this, where they're going, they feel a need to teach practical self-protection. But they also feel a need to teach their martial art. And let's face facts, you know, Mm. karate began as a civilian form of self-protection. So it was a very simplistic form. We know it was very simplistic. You only have to look at the likes of Motobu and people like that and see how simplistic it was to begin Mm. with. And then it's naturally progressed and evolved. And so it should do. There's no problem with that. You know, there's so much you can get from that, so much richness you can get from that. But it becomes a martial art. And now when you try and turn that into regular teaching and classes, it becomes a problem because now now you've got to get everything involved in there. So our view is like separate the self-protection, not to say you can't teach pragmatic stuff that has application to to self-protection in your martial arts lesson. But if you can have a self-contained course, especially for children, you can teach that as a secondary class, separate class with a badged system. You know, so Mm -hmm. people get a badge system. So, um, you know, they complete it. And a lot of that will involve parents. So they'll have their own little record books where, 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 they, where, where the parents sign off, you know, children being able to buy tickets for public transport, being able to buy things in shops, being able to cross the road, being able to. But all of that should be then taught alongside the self-protection. So when you when you queue up and buy something, okay, the skill the child has learned there is okay. I can independently go and buy buy my whatever I'm buying in the shop, you know, sweets or whatever I'm buying in the shop, and I can do that. However, the self protection layer is, I know where my exit points are, I know who the adult is who's supporting me here, you know, so I can go to. I'm preserving my personal space. Do you know what I mean? It's all that kind of things that, yeah. that and they'll all be ticked off with the record books. So. We have that as a so that is an end product, you know, that teachers can do and they can teach the animal uh, the animal instincts program. Then obviously what we'll be providing is the teaching course for that, which are going to be online teaching courses and face to face. So there'll be an online Mm -hmm. teaching course um, for the different stages uh, of videos with a pass fail test. 
Um, the people who do that won't be qualified as teachers, but they'll have, if they pass it, they'll have at least um, an approved qualification that they understand what that, you know, what the content of that soft skills is, you know, so they'll have that. Then if they do face-to-face, -face, they have to, um, they have to fulfill a performance criteria, you know, to, to, to be an instructor. They have to have you know, teaching experience. They have to have um, experience, co fairly comprehensive, hard skills experience. Um, and then we'll, we'll teach them how to, how to deliver the course properly. And then obviously there'll be a pass fail test at the end of that. And then they'll be a qualified teacher. Uh, so this is for uh, this is for the school owners and instructors, right? Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the teaching course, um, Animal Instincts. So that's that service, separate to when parents aren't around, even though they, yeah. linked, you know, they're, they're linked in terms of material. But yeah, it's a deep dive on that. So you've got a, a program that some people can take away. They're not. It's not just my concern with. I've taken this is the first time I've ever delivered a teaching course. I've, um, you know, I've been involved in martial arts since 1990. I've uh, taught martial arts. Well, I taught martial arts from 1996 to um, 2000, and then I've started teaching under the, my CCMA bracket in 2004 to the present day. Um, I haven't awarded a single teaching qualification during the whole time. I haven't. So mm. this is the first time I've decided to do that. Obviously, I'm doing it in collaboration with Mary, who brings actual academic teaching experience into this um which i'm really grateful of so we can look at you know proper teaching methods you're not just teaching people to deliver the material but also teach them to be better teachers you know, mm. you know maximum retention of information stuff that's going to work for that common practice up-to-date modern practice not well i this is how my sensei was taught and my sensei taught my sensei and this is yeah. that way you know the you know the good old bad old days and all that sort of thing you know this is actual or or just simply you know you know again a topic i covered in my late podcasts um of 2023 you know just because you've got a black belt doesn't mean you can teach do you know what i mean it's, yeah, yeah you know you know it's it's, it's it's that kind of thing so it'll, it'll it, there's that part of it so that's animal instinct so that's my teacher program that's my animal instincts teacher program um, um do you know do you've got a release date um i don't want to say i don't want to say <laughs> we have got we have got a date in our head we've had to keep putting it back because um number one we've both got lots of other commitments but number two we're yeah. really most importantly i want to deliver a quality course this has got to be something that is going to be i'm putting my name to it mary's putting her name to it it'll be the first time that anyone will have a, a teaching course they can say they've got a ccma brand they've also got a theme school of karate brand on it and it'll be animal instincts and it'll be something that's going to have a good quality course so we want to make sure we deliver this properly we want to make sure it gets out to the, the right number of people as well you know so it's going mm. to so when people sign up they're going to get two free ebooks one written by mary one written by me so you'll get a free ebook um and uh uh, and uh, so that, that that's that's if you sign up you don't have to sign up for the actual course itself that's just so that you're on the mailing list uh, and then after that you can um you know you can do, agree to do one of the video courses um again you know my whole view on this was that i didn't want this just to be something that people just put on their cv you know there's so mm, many times yeah. I've, I've been down that route there's instructor mills all the time you know you go and work you go and train with somebody and they give you a certificate and you can say oh I, i'm an instructor under such and such and they never teach it you know, how many yeah, people yeah. got things like they've got a whole list and they go, OK, so you've trained in Krav Maga, you've trained in uh, wing, you know, you've trained not wing transfer, but you've trained in Krav Maga, you've trained in uh, this, this martial art, that martial art. You say you've got instructors. <laughs> how many martial artists have got on their CV all the martial arts they've studied to, to instruct a level and yet can teach any of those martial arts? You know, if you ask mm. them, why can they teach them that? So. Or, or that system this isn't a martial art this is a obviously you know it's a it's an approach a system a method it's not an actual martial art but but um 
we want to have this so it's an end program so when you have this you've got something you can deliver and you can immediately turn it into a service that people are gonna um be, you know will be able to you know pay you for um you can run it separately for like if you get a booking of a school or you can run it alongside your club you know that's mm. the idea of that so that, that, that's the animal instincts part of it definitely yeah um obviously what, got, what, uh, sorry yeah go on no no go <laughs> i was gonna ask you what what um seminars you've got planned in the future um okay i'm uh, i'm taking bookings now for um when parents aren't around which i've already discussed there so children's self-protection vagabond warriors which is my martial arts cross training so that's looking at concepts like the switch uh feedback loop training um you know ecological dynamics in, in training um uh, generally a lot of you know cross cross training material they're, they're my main two services i offer but both of them can be tailored and bespoke that's that, that's mm. not what i want them to be um so if you're a teacher and you want me to teach I, I can a lot of people like a package where they do two hours children's self-protection and three hours cross training that tends to be what a lot of people like to book for but others have gone the full hog like um uh Hustlebro taekwondo um yeah, michael odishid um he, he booked me um and before him jan drachman booked me to teach uh weekend of children's of when parents aren't around so i get to do the full 10-hour course mm -hmm. and the course now is based entirely on the book um, uh prior to that it, it wasn't all based on the book it was just my children's self-protection in general this one is now like a it's like a part book launch so, so, so it's a directly reference to the book. So you get a, you know, up to 10 hours worth of uh, seminar there. And then obviously they also booked me for when parent for uh, vagabond warriors as well. So we did the cross training as well for the adults. So that tends to be kind of my, my service, but again, um, I'm looking, I'm uh, talking with Lee Sims at the moment. Um, we're both mm -hmm. working uh, an edge weapon and uh, awareness uh, program. That'll be drawing upon my QAP um instructor training i've got some senior instructor in kiwap have been since 2011 um mm -hmm. and uh, uh extra material that's been brought into that lee obviously lends a hell of a lot of weight not just through his practical application stuff but most importantly through his legal knowledge so mm -hmm. there'll be a lot on the legal side of it there's definitely needs to be a lot more education on uh the use of of, of weapons um mm -hmm. you know um i'm not into teaching people out of the psalm I'm more, into, I'm more into teaching people about what are the legalities with regards to the use of weapons, um, what are the best strategies in place dealing with people with with, uh, with weapons. I mean, I remember um, sometimes been often often when we're with a group of people and 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 you're um, and you've got people saying, okay, well, what are we talking about? How do we handle someone with a weapon? You know, and the stuff that comes up, as we know, is normally it's terrible it's terrible yes it is terrible and we know that someone pulls out an aged weapon there is definitely there's definitely no certainty there immediately everything changes dramatically mm. you a totally untrained person who is physically weaker than you and they pull out an aged weapon and suddenly they think it changes totally you know and that person could be a 10 year old you know being yeah. a in mind and it could change everything and and, and the context of them doing it as well you know people but commonly we've got all these scenarios where people are just showing showing an edged weapon they're threatening you with an edged weapon then how do you deal with that well most of the time how you deal with that is you're complying with them <laughs> okay mm -hmm. so what's generally happening there because they're not actually attacking yeah. you but that's another discussion altogether so this is where all the evasion training needs to come in like exiting points use of um obstructions use of um uh, incidental weaponry improvised weaponry use of things like that but also and leave you know can bring this straight in People thinking they can carry certain weapons, 
There's a lot of people in the martial arts community who feel that they can carry around what are, what are effectively offensive weapons. Mm. So they're in a almost paranoid mind, mindset where they'll be carrying something around. And you get this both civilians and martial artists, and they don't realize what is constitutes an offensive weapon. And uh, so there needs a lot more education about that. And it's not helping that social media has got targeted adverts for selling offensive weapons. You know, you know, mm. are being told, um, my wife is regularly targeted by with things like a, a, um, it's the stun pen is a classic example, mm. which is a taser. And so if you yeah, can, yeah. you know, and then and pepper spray, which is totally illegal in the UK. And, you know, these are all you know, things that people don't understand what you can carry. And you hear all the justifications for it. And yet I've seen too many examples of people who have uh, naively um, carried these these things and they've never had to use them in a self-defense situation. What's happened is that they'll forget they're carrying this. They'll turn up at a concert or they'll go to visit a place and suddenly security search them. They find the mm. weapon on them. So... And what, what do they do? The first thing they do, if, you, if it's a security person, they're going to be with another security person. So they can't say, look, just leave this here or hand this in or mm. confiscate this. You can go in. No, now they're in front of somebody. So now they're going to have to say, OK, we've got to call the police because you committed yeah. an offence. And now the police turn up. And what the police got to do? Police now in front of witnesses. They can't say, look, I'll take this off you and don't do it again. You know, even mm. though you know this, this person is unlikely to be you know, seems to be a very inoffensive person. They've got to go, okay, well, I'm going to have to give you a caution, at least, at least mm. a caution, which then, which is not, which is pretty much a, a criminal record. So all mm. of this comes from this ignorance and naivety that comes with offensive weapons. So I'm really looking forward to bringing Lee more into that. I did bring him to a little bit on online, and the pair of us are going to teach um, a more comprehensive edged weapon um, uh, awareness and uh, defence uh, seminar and that would that's going to be completely separate from um the other self-defense stuff i mean i taught for i taught self-protection i taught i taught this for dara over in um, ireland we had a great time over in ireland last year and uh uh the trouble with the kiwap that was teaching there a good deal of that was general self-protection don't get me wrong it worked for the audience that we had there but i became very conscious of the fact that um we were losing a lot of the material that was specific to edge weapons because we're bringing out, having to bring in all the, you know, because you can't assume that everybody knows about basic yeah, self-protection. Yeah. So my view now is, you know, do you want, you know, yes, I can deliver a course that's comprehensive. That's not a problem because some people do want to book me for that. They want to do a comprehensive self-protection course that involves edge weapons. I can do that. Trouble is you need a, a fair amount of time because you've got to kind of get the foundational self-protection first and then you've got to do the edge weapon stuff. But mm -hmm. you can't, uh, but a lot of the time, you know, people are going, okay, if you want edge weapons specifically, then we can do that. But the, the assumption has got to be sort of moving back to what we were talking about, the assumption of grappling. The assumption has got to be, you've got a good knowledge in, in self-protection, basic self -protection. Mm -hmm do that so yeah so there's going to be the edge weapon the edge weapon courses with, with lee sims uh is another one of the seminars that uh that, that i'm promoting this year as well mm. yeah we've got the league coming to our club to teach Excellent. the law as well yeah very we, people really liked it well we done one before before covid hit i think yeah and people really enjoyed it and uh, there's demand for it so i get get him in april and uh, it, it, it's so it's so important if you're saying that you're teaching self-defense you've got to it's a legal term this is the important mm. thing. it's a legal term so you've got to be able to say well what does that mean <laughs> you know a lot of people that think self-defense they confuse self-defense with a 
whole whole number of things. But the bottom line is, it is a legal term. You know, you can. Mm. I always say this to people. You know, if you know if you're involved in an altercation with somebody and the law is involved, um, if you say, "Oh, I use karate," they'll go, "You know, it's so what." okay i use kickboxing i use kung fu so what none of that's in the law books none of that's you know that that's irrelevant you know but if you go uh it was self-defense they can they can yeah. say well okay well okay well we'll see about that you know mm. a jury can decide self people with no training whatsoever in, in in a combative art can decide whether or not something's self-defense and mm. i think it's the confusion people use the word self-defense interchangeably with martial arts but they use it use it interchangeably with any system you know it's, it's not it's it's self-defense is a legal term and so we have to make sure we have that first so before i mean i've been in courses where people have you know produced uh um like the criminal law act in the uk the criminal law act um uh, uh, uh um section three article one which is you know and they make you read it out at the very beginning and then they tear it up it used to be like a, a, a thing. You tear it up because, you know, we're interested in preserving and you're going, well, you know, and that's that, you know, I'd rather be, I'd rather be uh, uh, tried by 12 than carried by six things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're going, well, yeah, I know too many incidents where there's plenty of people were, were, would eat those words, you know, really, really wished they'd known about the legal side of it all. Because uh, yeah. there's a huge amount of ignorance about, about that. And if you're teaching self-defense, I believe that you've got a duty of care in order to actually teach the legal side of it, or, or provide somebody who can teach the legal side of it, mm. it's great. Yeah, I, 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 I am staying away from self-defense. I, I done the look of what I do and I want to do, and my main focus is on the longevity and health. And um, yeah. so I stopped. Good, ten years ago, I stopped using self-defense. Yeah, any yeah. of my advertising, and yeah. when I talk to people, I always say I'm not teaching self-defense. I more towards sports and. Yes. longevity yeah it just it just doesn't create a false image for people who come to the club yeah exactly exactly it's a good, you know, a good description again the, you know a lot of time in martial arts i think that there's been too much of a need to say it, it provides this it provides that there's like you know you would never buy a you'd never buy a car that, that would tell you it's the fastest roadster but it's also a great family car safest uh, safest you know car you know yeah. you can't provide everything so you know that's why again i'm very service driven as well when people mm. come to me and they go okay i want to learn uh, something and I go what do you want and I have to try and go through exactly what they're what they're expecting you know some people might say mm -hmm. self-defense most of the time they don't mean self-defense so they're going I'm going but or they they go into this myth where they believe that they're going to learn it as a byproduct you know if I if I do some kickboxing with you aren't I going to be good at self-defense anyway I'm going mm -hmm. mm, not necessarily no. <laughs> no no not at all or self-protection you know you need to do that course for that job you know that's the uh, yeah so that's that's um yeah yeah i, th I think again yeah, there definitely needs to be more honest advertising in martial arts um on the whole so it's uh, it's good to hear that yeah uh did you notice any changes in your client base after after covid do you have got more people yes, online because i i see you a lot online i see you TikToking and and doing those um uh fight analysis and, and stuff yeah. i see a lot of online yeah um yeah um yeah my after uh during covid my my, my clients went uh increased mm. yeah, it, it, it changed dramatically because i went straight to online i had the advantage of not running a club yeah simply as that i'd switched in 2014 i switched from running a club to doing pts only pt seminars mm. only so in that environment uh the lockdown suited it perfectly because 
for a variety of reasons. N number one, I was very used to so to training on my own because I mm -hmm. live in the middle of nowhere. So when I used to, I used to go out training classes, but then I didn't have anyone else to train with, so I'd have to go back home and develop, be creative and develop my own stuff. I had a lot of time on my own to to to, to do that. So I, I you know, I'd, and then I would have to go to other classes and see how I could retain those skills and still to training so i was able to I, I developed loads of solo routines plus i researched i'd been researching a lot into online training already um mm -hmm. you know a few pioneers way before covid who were who were doing a lot of train at home routines and stuff like that i was getting a lot of inspiration from them too um but obviously prior to that it was all my own personal experience then i also um could provide very much um a break for a lot of a lot of teachers during lockdown you know they, they they would be getting burnt out trying to cater for all their students you know throughout the week um it's hard to retain attention you know very very hard to retain attention yeah. it's, it's it's you know a real strain um so to have me come in and teach something totally different like a total fresh perspective it kept everyone interested and you know mm. extra things came from there but i also lent into the technology you know my view was like well rather than just me standing in front of the monitor and you following me okay we can do better, so much we can do better than that you know this is the mm. perfect environment for presentations for a start so that means more interactive things so look do a lot more a lot more soft skills work could be taught by, mm. by doing that type of interaction we were able to do soft skills that are um you know because people were sat down they, uh, were looking at the monitor that's after all that's what you're doing when you're when you're um you know when you're working on a computer you're doing soft skills so soft mm. skills like was great so the presentations worked, worked brilliantly in that respect then um i looked at well what about looking at old fight footage you know let's look at you know this is again one of the things i use for some of my training you know one of the things i learned mm. from a, a course i did in the 90s was making synaptic responses um to to fighting you know to fight situations you know uh there was a there was a video called beyond speed it gave me the inspiration for some of this where you'd watch you you watch two people um having a fight for example uh, online or on video at the time it was or whatever and what you do is that you pick which fighter you are so you decide right i'm fighting that guy you imagine you're fighting that guy and every time you see an opening you click your fingers. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so you click, you say opening, click your fingers. He's off balance, click your fingers. His guard's down. I can reach him. You know, so you keep doing this. So you're feeding that response. Funny enough, I knew another uh, karate instructor who used to um, make people freeze in the time that with their katas just to check their balances all the time. Like they they would give them like mm -hmm. a complete and and uh, it was always constantly checking balance you know and so i used to remember that as well so with all that in mind i think there's so much we can learn by visual cues and i used to take that to some of my training i remember being in a thai boxing class and um uh and we had an odd number so i, I as i went out sat out i um i thought well i want to keep moving you know i don't want to get cold um, as i'm waiting for my turn so i thought i'm going to apply this now to what's going on here so you snap your fingers the next stage is to hit something um, mm -hmm. so you know so it doesn't matter what the technique is you don't have to worry about technique the whole point here is all about getting that response get, I see the opening get the response so you're not massively you know the next stage will be turning into technique but you know, we've gone from snapping to, to, to so we're getting that connection the next stage shadow box so now you're shadow boxing so you're watching a fight and you're shadow boxing against the other person and this is what mm -hmm. I was doing in the lesson so it was my time to sit out in sparring I would be shadow boxing watching two people fight 
and picking like as if I was fighting the other person. So responding to their openings, et cetera, et cetera. So I put that, I thought, well, I'm going to take that information and put that into the online training. So we can watch mm-hmm. great fighters. Not only that, but also we can watch the best, you know, so I can go. So we, we would do, you know, lessons where we just focus on the jab. And then you bring out all the greatest jab, jab, uh, jabbers, you know, everyone from Larry Holmes right back to Benny Leonard, Muhammad Ali, uh, you know, uh, Lomachenko. Uh, you know, there's, there's all these amazing people who, who, who um, had these great jabs and we can watch their technique for the jab. We can watch the power jab, the flicker jab, the speed, you know, the, uh, um, the pouring jab, et cetera, et cetera. So we do that and the next lesson will be the cross and all this kind of thing. And you get people to... Um, do their shadow boxing, but now their shadow boxing is a far more is far better guided and directed. I mean, shadow boxing can, is shadow boxing is a very um, badly taught um, art in many respect. You know, you know, it was in many ways it was initiated by a boxer called George Dixon in the late part of the nineteenth century. Um, who, if Jack Johnson was the first black heavyweight champion, George Dixon was the first black athlete to win a world championship in anything he was a you know a very mm. light lighter weight fighter and one of his main influences was bo- was shadow boxing you know but a lot of boxers didn't shadow box back then and he brought shadow boxing in so you know now we look at t- today and thinking what, what does shadow boxing mean and again I, I when i went to train with mo teague his his muay thai coach tom now sadly he's not with us anymore but he made a big point about this he got with everyone shadow boxing he said your shadow boxing is awful so can everyone shadow boxing said all you're just doing is standing around picking your favorite techniques you're not thinking about what you're doing so you should be visualizing your opponent mm-hmm. what time where are your openings what do you what tactics are you using imagine what type of opponent you do, you're you're you're, you're um, training to fight against when i did my boxing course with tommy thompson and likewise, he'd get, you know, he was one of Brendan Ingalls' senior coaches. He'd get everybody in the ring, well, individuals in the ring, and we'd all have to we'd be on the spot, everyone watching us. And then he'd make a shadow box and he'd call out different opponents. So he'd go, you know, you're against an aggressive fighter, you're against a wild swinger, you're against a taller opponent, you're against a shorter opponent, you're against, you know what I mean? There's all these, and you mm-hmm. so it really help us visualize in, in our training, that, that type of visualization. So this is all things that, again, I was able to convey in a lot of my, not only my online training videos, but also the, the stuff over lockdown. So that client base increased, but uh, one of the main retentions I got from that was instructors, so especially instructors abroad. It's a very affordable way. People can book me to teach them online, you know, mm. so, and, uh, and, you know, and I had one teacher in the UK, this was actually, I mean, I had teachers abroad doing it, obviously, but I teach one teacher in the UK, Vijay Pathak, um, Forest School, a Forest uh, School of Karate. He, he went the full hog with me. He went just, this was just at that very um, ooh, half, half out of lockdown period. You know, that really peculiar mm. thing where you're allowed to do so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that kind of thing we, we, were, we were up to allowing pad work or something i remember at that time but he booked me in he got a projector um and, and a screen so he was able to um uh get me online so he streamed me in to teach the lesson i'd done a private lesson with him and his instructor prior to this his son and so we'd already gone through what the drills we were going to work they watched videos of boxers shadow boxed against the boxers and trained, then took that information onto the focus mitts, and I was able to instruct their teachers mm-hmm. by streaming in the hall on the focus mitts. So we were able to take full advantage of the material of looking at great fighters of the past, pull that into our own training routines, and then transfer that directly into a class. So it was a great way just to use the technology available, just really lean mm. into, rather than just going, just point the camera at me and just follow me like we do in a regular class. You know, 
use what 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 you know what uh, what we have at our at our disposal. But since then, I've had the people also book me to help them restructure their syllabuses, um, bring in more material to their syllabuses. I mean, again, um, in this drum fitness uh, jujitsu, um, sorry, uh, drum drum jujitsu and fitness. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, over in Ireland as well. Um, that, you know that that will uh, will will. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, he he's booked me a lot um, to help him with some of the uh, and he's doing some great stuff with children's self protection. I mean, honestly, he's got some really good ideas with things like how to use right down to ice breaking in a class to use that as mm -hmm. a way to teach children how to make friends better. Friends mean allies. Allies mean better protection, self protection. So all that kind of thing. So I've had people, you know, doing all that sort of stuff online as well. So a lot of my consultancy is built up from that, and also my reach has built up from from uh, from lockdown. I think everybody's reach built up on lockdown. Yeah, oh, huge, isn't it? We, we start learning on a smaller world we've got now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I know it's, this is really light, and we're several years on, but I, I remember seeing teachers just throw their dummies out the pram and. Mm. And I felt that because they felt it wasn't it was breaking with tradition. You know, so they couldn't teach online because it broke with tradition. Mm. I went, so and I was looking at them going, that's interesting that. So what, you, what you're telling me, it's not traditional to be training on your own. You know, do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, you've literally When got, you're doing katas. <laughs> yeah, katas. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So you're looking at it and you're going... There's so many, you know, Masayama, classic example, martial artists who famously went off on their own to train. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's what they did. And, and you're going, that's, and you're just throwing your dummy out the pram. And in your class, you're teaching people about perseverance and uh, resilience and overcoming uh, um, any obstacles in your life. You, you're, you're telling people these things. And yet you're now put in a confined situation and you're not adapting so you're not so how where's that what's that got to do with perseverance what's that got to do with resilience you know what's that got to do with adaption yeah. you know and exactly saying you're in many ways you're, you you should be going back to what sort of the old masters were doing you're, you're teaching people this is how you train on your own you know yeah. I, I couldn't think of a better better lesson you know saying this is what you do when you you've only got yourself to rely on you know it's um so yeah that was um uh, um, uh, you know an interesting experiment i think for martial artists an interesting testing ground for a lot of people as well yeah, for sure. Yeah. Jenny, I need to go to teach. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. Um, Thank you, Les. Drop me the links. We're going to put as much as we can about sure. Jamie's services and, and stuff down in the description. Yep. And I hope to catch up with you soon. Let me know when the course is going to be ready. And I hope that we can do some, maybe some courses together in the Definitely. near future. Yeah, very, very, up, very much up for that, Les. Excellent. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Sports Social Podcast Network.